Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back. Here's why you should watch today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. The SEC and Ripple call for an immediate ruling on a long-running crypto dispute. We'll explain why the battle over XRP could have a ripple effect over the wider market. Plus, we'll do a deep dive into how asset managers see the digital space. Lauren Gu and Amakase from Recharge Capital explain their thematic investment strategy. And as always, we'll break it down into the key takeaways at the end. Stay tuned. I'm Nico Bruga, and with me as always is Ash Bennington. How are you doing today, Ash? I'm doing great, man. It's great to be back with you as always. Oh, always a pleasure, and we got lots to get to, so might as well dive into some price action. Um, but before we do, don't forget to subscribe and like and click that bell on YouTube or join us at realvision.com backslash crypto. All right, on to the price action. Bitcoin is up slightly over a 24-hour basis after falling to its lowest since June. A challenging macro environment is definitely wreaking havoc, including fears over another significant rate hike later this year. It has been a major drag on all risk assets. Ash, what's it looking like for Ethereum? Well, it's not any better on the Ethereum side, Nico, unfortunately. Despite the merge being widely regarded as a success, Ethereum is down some 20% on a trailing seven-day basis. That's worse than Bitcoin in percentage terms. However, Ethereum did not test any new lows, as we saw lots of volatility and big swings prior to the merge, Nico. Thank you for that, Ash. One other token we're looking at today is XRP. Indeed, it's one of the best performers of the day, up some 10%. And that brings us to our top story. We have more news on the ongoing battle that's gripped many in the crypto space. And indeed, it could determine the regulatory landscape for hundreds of coins. The SEC... Um, and Ripple, the company that created the XRP token, have been locked in a dispute over the nature of XRP since December 2020. Questions include, did Ripple violate the federal securities law? Is XRP an unregistered security or not? Both parties have nailed filed motions for summary judgment and want the judge overseeing the case to make a ruling now without a trial. Indeed, just so everybody's aware, XRP is the number seven cryptocurrency by market cap, but it's not quite a household name yet. Ash, can you give us a brief overview of XRP itself? Yeah, absolutely, Nico. XRP was created in 2012 as the native token of the Ripple payment protocol. The single most important use case for XRP, at least as I understand it, is cross-border payment. Indeed, that's the first use case that we see listed on the Ripple website. Why does all this matter? Well, Cross-border payments is a highly regulated use case, uh, reliant, in my view at least, by adoption of international money center banks. You know, just a couple of years ago, I went and read through XRP's white papers on the Ripple website, and they were definitely focusing on being compliant. And now you have the SEC alleging that Ripple essentially conducted an unregistered security sale. This is uh, obviously something that uh, is not something that would be regarded as a as a as a tailwind to to Ripple. Indeed, in fact, uh, some may see it as an excess 
existential threat. Obviously, opinions on this matter differ. But the specific thing that happened now, why we're talking about this today, is that both sides have filed motions for summary judgment in the Southern District of New York. Essentially, in non-technical terms, what they're saying to the court is, hey, you guys have the information you need to make the decision right now. We don't need a full trial. We'll have to see. Obviously, this is a story we're going to be following very closely, Nico. And Ash, just before we move on, do you think there's any uh, wider implications for the crypto market as a whole considering this uh, lawsuit? Well, you know, it's interesting. We're going to talk about this more in our next story. But obviously, uh, this entire legal regulatory compliance framework is something that I think is incredibly important. Uh, I've even alluded to this potential coming civil war in the crypto space over regulation. Uh, those who believe in the sort of libertarian ideals of cryptocurrency and those who want uh, cryptocurrencies to be regulated in many ways, uh, like securities uh, or within the sort of broader purview of the U.S., indeed the international regulatory framework. Uh, so it's an important story for that reason. How much beyond Ripple this case applies uh, that still remains to be seen. And of course, we're going to be watching the outcome of this case very carefully to give you further analysis, Nico. Absolutely. And indeed, the SEC is not only turning its attention on XRP, it is now also turning its attention on Ethereum. Dun, dun, dun. A bold claim found in a run-of-the-lill SEC lawsuit uh, regarding Ian Bellina uh, claims he didn't register his ICO, his initial coin offering, in 2018. Now, this just broke yesterday, and we've seen many similar cases by the SEC in the past. But what's unusual in this case is that um, in the letter to uh, investors uh, who were sending ETH to Bellina, uh, it was noted that uh, it was validated by a network of nodes on the Ethereum blockchain, which are clustered more densely in the United States than in any other country. Thus, the SEC concludes, as a result, those transactions took place in the United States. Obviously, there's lots to unpack here. Ash, just what is the SEC claiming? Well, first, Nico, you did a great job explaining this sort of very complicated and convoluted sounding filing. Uh, by the way, we should say this filing uh, came to light yesterday, or it was filed yesterday, uh, and publicly uh, noticed of availability yesterday. So this is uh, the quote that is so important. I just want to read this to people so they can hear exactly in the language uh, that SEC used. Quote, the U.S.-based investors in Bellina's pool irrevocably committed to the transaction when, from within the United States, they sent their Ethereum contribution to Bellina's pool. At that point, their Ethereum contributions were validated by a network of nodes on the Ethereum blockchain, which are clustered more densely in the United States than in any other country. And here's the killer. As a result, those transactions took place in the United States. So there are some who are reading this uh, essentially as an assertion by SEC that all Ethereum transactions are subject to their jurisdiction. Now, that's obviously a very wide interpretation for what is, in fact, a, a very narrow case. You, you have this case, as you said, uh, Nico, where there's a, an allegation that there was an unregistered uh, securities offering in the form of an ICO in 2018. But the significance here, uh, many are reading into this, is potentially much broader. So I would say, you know, look, this is a single filing, a single paragraph, really, in a single filing by a single regulator uh, against uh, uh, one person who allegedly engaged in an unregistered securities offering. It takes a lot to sort of extrapolate more broadly uh, that essentially all Ethereum transactions are under uh, the purview of SEC. But that's exactly what's being questioned here. And I think it's, it's fair and reasonable to point out that that is still very much an open 
question. You know, more broadly, I, I just want to give a little bit of context here for for what this space is and 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 how we think about regulation. So the real challenge here is that ultimately uh, you have you have Congress in the United States that uh, that enacts legislation that then gets signed by the president. If the president vetoes it, it goes back to Congress for uh, a supermajority override on the veto. These are effectively uh, organizations that are at least in the view of the unitary executive theory, which is a, a thesis about the way that uh, the way that regulators are ultimately responsible to the president of the United States. You have representatives from the president uh, of the United States in the form of these regulatory agencies uh, making uh, these filings here. And this is what they do, right? They file civil suit when they believe that U.S. law has been violated. So this is a, a really sort of big, obviously complicated, broader story about how we get to the legal regulatory and compliance clarity that we need uh, in the United States. You know, to me, it's just still extremely early. Congress has yet to weigh in and pass law uh, on this. There is not the case law in the space. There's not really even the the sort of precedents that are well established at the regulatory level, uh, at the re regulatory agency level. So this is there's a lot to happen here, and I think people really need to understand this when they read these stories that sound, um, you know, potentially as though they're going to resolve these challenges. There's still a lot more to come. And by the way, we should also add uh, Jay Powell, chairman of the Fed, uh, commentary about CBDCs potentially eliminating some of these challenges. It is extremely early on the technology side, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard uh, to get legislation out of Congress about this. These things seem to change uh, month to month, sometimes week to week. Lots of challenges here, Nico. This is part of a much broader story that we're going to be following here intensely on Real Vision because of its impact on this space, Nico. Absolutely. And it isn't just the SEC that is uh, focusing its attention on crypto regulation. It's also the White House now. On Friday, the Biden administration put out its first ever crypto framework for regulation. Key takeaways as per CNBC, they want to focus on eliminating illegal activity in the industry. They want to introduce strict regulations for stable coins, and they want to point out potential significant benefits of a CBDC, i.e. digital dollar. Ash, lots to unpack here. What, why do you think it's noteworthy? And what's the overall message coming from the White House? Well, you know, it's always noteworthy whenever the White House weighs in on anything. You know, I mentioned this unitary executive thesis, this idea that ultimately uh, the president is responsible for regulatory agencies in the form of uh, providing guidance to their heads. This is important uh, because essentially the White House is weighing in and telling Congress uh, the way that they should act to enact regulation that presumably this White House uh, would sign. But again, this is part of a, a very long sort of process here. You know, effectively, this is just guidance uh, for those regulators and for Congress to uh, sort of harmonize with the vision uh, that the president has. But again, this is part of a much broader conversation. It is still extremely, extremely early. And when the White House issues uh, this type of guidance, uh, in my view at least, uh, people should not take this to mean uh, that somehow we're going to get regulated clarity uh, on this two weeks from Tuesday. Obviously important to point out on this question and the previous question, I am not a lawyer. Uh, this is not legal advice. It's not financial advice. But we're just struggling here, Nico, to get our heads around sort of these, these momentous sounding stories that keep popping up, uh, sometimes multiple stories per day around these very much, very much open questions about how these things are going to be handled from a legal, regulatory, compliance, and indeed legislative perspective, Nico. Speaking of which, let's hop across the pond where the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, is speaking out against FTX, saying it's not authorized to offer financial services or products in the UK. 
Per Bloomberg, though, FTX is pushing back, saying telephone numbers listed in the announcement aren't theirs and that it is most likely scammers impersonating FTX. This is a really interesting one, Ash. What do you make of it all? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. I don't recall ever seeing a story where uh, essentially a regulator said, hey, you guys are conducting business uh, in uh, in our state, in our regulatory purview that you shouldn't be. You guys need to pull it. Uh, and then the um, the entity comes back and says, hey, no, that's not us. That's actually scammers uh, attempting to uh, defraud people using fake phone numbers. Uh, it's an interesting one. And I'm sure we're going to follow this story and we'll find out uh, what happened here uh, in the relatively near term. But big picture, the more important takeaway I I think from this is if you are in a particular jurisdiction, do your own research, understand who is regulated to do business there and who is not. That's an important point that people need to make, particularly as we as we talk about on this show, how very early it is uh, in this regulatory regime for digital assets. Really important for people to do their own research, make their own decisions about what's legal and not legal in their own jurisdictions, Nico. Absolutely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's take a quick look at uh, the never-ending story involving uh, Luna and Terra and their founder, Duquan. Uh, the Financial Times is reporting that South Korean authorities have asked Interpol to issue a red notice against Duquan. Authorities are alleging he is not cooperating with the investigation over the $40 billion implosion of Terra, USD, and Luna. While uh, South Korean authorities are claiming Duquan is on the run, Duquan denies this via a tweet, which we'll throw up right here. Now, on to our main segment. As, reg as regulators try to catch up with the quickly evolving space, asset managers are trying to figure out how to best invest in it. Recharge Capital describes itself as a multi-strategy investment firm with thematic first investing at its core. Indeed, one of those themes is the digital space. Ash spoke with founding partner of Recharge, Lauren Gu, and its digital asset managing partner, John No. John Lowe, excuse me, better known as Omakase. Let's begin with Lauren describing their philosophy when it comes to the digital space. Let's take a listen. We are thematic based just because we do believe that picking the right theme is going to be producing long-term alpha compared to being generalist, especially in a tough time like this, where the fundamental values of the business that we believe in and the sectors we believe in. Uh, will really drive the demand. And those are hard demands that will continue to push forward innovation as well as the business revenue generation. Uh, when it comes to crypto, we really see crypto as a different form of fintech, uh, but also in emerging market. If you really think about crypto, uh, we really see it as digital new nations, um, similar to uh, Brazil or Mexico as made of government and population. We believe that cryptos are the same, uh, just on a different dimension with uh, decentralized participants or citizens of the digital countries. And we do believe that the first and foremost thing that a country needs is fintech or financial infrastructure. And that's why we believe that uh, for crypto, uh, what we are trying to focus on is really the digital finance infrastructure side. 
Nonetheless, crypto is still an enormous theme if you look at it from that framework. How do you think about your individual investments in the space? What separates the good from the bad? I think so much of the crypto over the last two years frenzy has been focused on the application side and the future promises that crypto could really fulfill. But without the initial infrastructure, a lot of those are just dreams rather than realities. Uh, so for us, again, we sort of stick to a framework of access, upsell, and regulation. And we do believe that uh, crypto is still in the phase one um, approach when it comes to the development of this nascent uh, digital nations. It's an absolutely fascinating click, but let's pick up with what he mentioned about crypto just being a different form of fintech. It seems that they are interested in the financial infrastructure when it comes to investing and not necessarily the coins themselves. Ash, what does this reveal about the opportunities that are being presented in the space? And what are your general reactions to this clip? Well, you know, Lauren is basically making the case, as you said, uh, that crypto is a kind of fintech, and they're basically investing, as you say, in the fintech infrastructure beneath cryptocurrency. He goes on to compare them to sovereign states. Now, I suspect regulators within sovereign states might feel a little bit differently about this, but it's an interesting metaphor, and it's an interesting way to think about it. He also compares DeFi to emerging markets. One of the really interesting things about crypto in general is that it's truly global. So it's a good metaphor in that sense. It is, in fact, a global technology uh, with EMs, that's emerging markets, there's another way that the metaphor seems fitting, uh, which is that there's high potential for growth, but also high risk. Uh, and it's also in EMs as well as in DeFi and crypto more generally, very early in the development cycle. In fact, I think we actually touch upon this in the very next clip. When you take a system and you rebuild it from first principles, um, that system is ultimately more efficient, transparent, and uh, some could say also more robust. So. Um, I would say in general, since DeFi protocols are uh, quite frankly simple, um, this simplicity has actually allowed for these protocols to become incredibly robust and incredibly autonomous, right? So this type of infrastructure, we have conviction will you know, stand the test of time. So if we're talking about institutions that last for you know, even 30 to 50 to 100 years, right? Most Fortune, five, Fortune 500 companies probably don't last for more than 30 to 50 years, right? We'll, we'll probably see um, DeFi and elements along this like lineage that has been started in 2018 last for you know above 100 years, as long as decentralized networks continue propagating. And all the incentives and kind of game theory effects around decentralized networks allow it to propagate so aggressively and also uh, stay resilient. Uh, to a certain degree. So Ash, what do you make of uh, John's remarks when he says, quote, when you take a system and you rebuild it to make it more efficient, transparent, and more robust, it will stand the test of time. Do you think that the current state of DeFi can attest to that? Oh, really good questions. Uh, you know, I, I think I asked the guys, I'm not sure if you saw it in this clip, but I asked them essentially, uh, what is DeFi's unique contribution and what problems does DeFi solve that TradFi does not? And as you say, Omakase started by talking about this idea of first principles, the idea that if you start building something from scratch, you can redesign the effectively the core values. And he lists among those core values, efficiency, 
transparency and robustness. I, I want to just talk about each one of those uh, in turn because I think it's important. So transparency has certainly been one metric uh, by which the traditional finance system has failed. I'm thinking specifically here back in 2008, interbank lending froze up because uh, banks were essentially afraid to lend to each other because they didn't know what was inside some of the securities, especially the mortgage-backed securities, uh, collateralized loan obligations, CDOs, CDO squared, all these synthetics. So this was a challenge whereby I think you know, the traditional finance system failed to meet the goals uh, that had been, you know, everyone expected of it. We didn't think we'd wind up in this situation with an absence of transparency. Uh, Omakase is arguing that DeFi can help solve that. I think that's an important uh, first principle. Switching gears to robustness, on the other hand, uh, Omakase is talking about these systems that could last potentially 100 years. I think there are two challenges right now. The first is security, uh, meaning the technology security. We've talked about this a lot on the show, the hacks we've seen uh, in flash loans, bridge hacks, uh, all types of other exploits that we've seen where people have been able to effectively steal money from these DeFi protocols. That's a significant challenge. Uh, and second, the legal, regulatory, compliance, legislative things that we're talking about in this very show. Those are still very much open questions. And because of that, uh, I think that you know this is a significant challenge for the space. It is very early. Uh, to, to start talking about, in my view, at least 100-year systems. I think that my, my next question uh, also, unfortunately, isn't in this clip, but I basically says say, uh, it, you know, it, excuse me one second, let me just get reference this here correctly. Uh, so I think that the question I specifically asked was about the legal, regulatory, and compliance aspects here. Uh, but your question, Nico, which is, what do you think of the current state of the DeFi space? You know, look, uh, I would say today, there's certainly not enough evidence to suggest that we have a 100-year system in place for all the reasons that I just mentioned, the security challenges, the legal regulatory compliance challenges that we're going to be following, indeed, that we saw in many uh, of the stories that came up today, Nico. Thank you for that, Ash. And obviously, we were asking you to look into your crystal ball, and that's not always easy. So let's turn our attention to the present and where we are in terms of adoption. This is what Amakase covers in the next clip. Let's take a listen. An analogy that we always use is we're probably around where China was in the 1990s. So it hasn't emerged as kind of a global manufacturing hub in the same way that, you know, we fundamentally believe that crypto will emerge as a global settlement hub to a certain degree because settlements on uh, blockchain are incredibly efficient and transparent um, and cut out, you know, all sorts of, you know, middlemen and fees. Um, right now, you know, China in the 1990s, it's kind of first opening up, has its, um, you know, banks, you know, um, you know, uh, limited regulation, et cetera. And that's, that's where we kind of see crypto right now. We see the emergence of the um, initial financial institutions, whether you want to call them decentralized exchanges, decentralized lending protocols, um, you know, decentralized vault mechanisms, et cetera, um, that are all forming this base layer. Once you move on top of that base layer, you can build kind of higher order services or higher order protocols. So these are things like private wealth management, gaming, um, you know, uh, things that actually uh, appeal to um, you know the, the larger market as opposed to obscure you know financial derivatives. Um, but you need these kind of obscure financial derivatives in order to um, you know solidify and cover all the edge cases um, of this you know ever evolving system. Um, so, you know, there's going to be incredible use cases for crypto, especially, you know, after the merge, after, you know, the uh, growth of layer two networks, uh, after the growth of application specific sharding for, you know, even uh, more scalability, which has been a, you know, incredible pain point to adoption. 
And you know, in a few years' time, we're going to see incredibly resilient, robust uh, protocols just operate um, that are um, more efficient than their fintech or even traditional counterparts in many sense. Um, and we'll see, you know, lots of um, these higher order protocols being built on top. Um, so if you want to consider, uh, you know, the metaverse or gaming um, and all of those mechanisms for kind of these in-game economies, right? Like DeFi is a very great template of all the, you know, financial institutions you can deploy in those, you know, um, truly digital nations. Um, and a lot of this infrastructure is currently being built. It's still nascent. Um, and I would say we're still very early in the adoption curve to many degrees. Um, if you look at every, you know, addressable metric, many people, you know, interact with centralized exchanges. They know how to buy crypto. Very few people still interact with on-chain contracts. Um, we expect that number to, you know, grow 10, 20 fold in the next few years as those use cases emerge. I really love this analogy here about how China was in the 1990s when it comes to talking about the digital space adoption curve. Ash, what do you make of that analogy? Well, you know, China in the 1990s was obviously highly volatile, not really transparent. I uh, didn't probably have uh, the investor protections that most Westerners are used to, and the markets were not easy to access. So I'm not sure if that's the metaphor he was drawing. I think he's talking about the potential for growth. Uh, that's the important point, I think, to take from this, Nico, is that China was rising on a secular basis. And what he's making here is effectively the long-term case uh, about how the layers of infrastructure need to be built out, uh, the need for sharding and scalability enhancements. It's very exciting. There are lots of potential use cases here. I can see why he would sort of draw that metaphor with China, a great deal of potential, a great deal of potential for growth. Uh, something else that got uh, removed from this clip I hear just for time constraints uh, that I think is important to stress is the very next thing I said right after the clip ended uh, was that in some ways this reminds me of the dot-com bubble and then ultimately the dot-com bust. Specifically, uh, it was clear to many of us in that time, myself included, that the internet was the future, the future of commerce, the future of communication, the future of finance. And yet, and yet, people lost huge amounts of money speculating on dot-com stocks. So once again, we've said it here before, we'll say it again, caveat emptor, buyer beware, ICBTR, it's cool, but there's risk. People need to understand those risks as well as the opportunities. And I think in many ways, uh, his China in the 90s metaphor sort of manages to capture both the risk side of the equation, but also the opportunity in terms of potential potential growth that could, uh, you know, in theory, have this sort of hockey stick exponential upside trend that we saw in the internet. Those are the sort of logical oppositions that we're trying to balance here as we sort through this. A lot of risk, but a lot of potential opportunity. That's what makes this space so interesting, Nico. Very well said, Ash. And I just want to make a quick mention to the audience. There's a lot of talk of clips and all of that. Starting in just a couple weeks, every interview that occurs on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, with the occasional exception, will be live. So no more clips. You're going to get it all live. And we'll have Full more Monty. news on that shortly. <laughs> Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Alrighty, before we wrap out today, let's take a quick listen to how Omakase thinks we can get to mass adoption in the digital asset space. Let's take a look. I would say fundamentally, uh, maybe we're looking at the two-year window. I would say right now, um, you know, as Lauren said, uh, crypto is so large that it's in becoming intertwined with you know, the global macro system. And right now it's definitely under the pressures, you know, under macroeconomic pressures. Um, so until those pressures kind of alleviate, um, crypto will be subject and somewhat intertwined. Um, by every available metric for L1s and L2s, we do see um, somewhat of a recession going on in terms of number of transactions, number of users, uh, number you know, total AUM um, that's being flipped by different protocols. So it's like, uh, I guess this concept of uh, digital uh, velocity, right, is somewhat slowing down. But we do see a lot of, you know, we're hopeful because we see a lot of infrastructure continuing to be built. We, we see a lot of um, new narratives emerging. Um, and this is common because, you know, um, regardless of whatever bear market, there will always be builders and there will always be people who want to innovate. And um, there will always be people with the resources to innovate, right? So matching those resources with people who want to innovate, right, is fundamentally the name of the game. Um, I would say... In terms of mass adoption, right, we're, we're, we're seeing a few narratives emerge that, um, you know, place it around realistically the two-year mark. So the first one is like UX UI. Um, so transaction, these, these involve everything from, you know, the base layer to, um, you know, infrastructure, uh, in, in, like caching infrastructure. Um, you know, my common gripe always is that DeFi protocols don't really show the historical APR, all right? Um, I would say that's most likely a caching infrastructure issue that needs to be solved. So there are lots of little things, right? Like wallet UX, um, how to store private keys, right? We have all sorts of new technologies like MPC style wallets, right? Um, and we also have, you know, from the gaming side of things, also the introduction of like session wallets. So all these new concepts are emerging. I would say probably it would take um, two years for all these concepts to solidify. And by the time it solidifies, I will say many people won't even know that it's crypto underneath, right? Many people won't even know that the infrastructure is decentralized and incredibly efficient. What people will know is that, you know, from a creator creator's perspective, um, creators uh, will now, you know, be incentivized fundamentally to create more because now a system exists where they can be appropriately awarded for whatever participation they had, right? So, you know, for example, for NFTs, right? We're going to see a lot of, um, you know, talks about, you know, derivatives and derivative licensing and how you can combine NFTs and how you can kind of um, solve for a lot of the pain points for kind of distributed royalties and that whole like workflow. My fundamental belief is that if you make people's lives easier, right, um, they'll just do more things, right? Um, so that's the fundamental shift that crypto will bring, which is uh, whether it's the creator perspective, whether it's the financialization perspective, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the distribution perspective for, you know, different artists, et cetera, um, this entire infrastructure uh, will make people's lives easier and they will be more productive as a result. So John there says that he thinks it's two years for mass adoption in crypto to kick in. Ash, is that the time frame you're hearing from other experts you've been speaking with? 
Well, you know, the first thing I would say is that Omakase mentions the macroeconomic headwinds that the space is facing, which we talk about here on Real Vision all the time and on this show more specifically. You know, Nico, I have to be honest, I was extremely impressed that he gave that specific an answer, that he actually said two years. I wasn't expecting him to get that specific. You know, to me, that sounds soon, but that's just my gut, not sort of a formal analysis. You know, I think it'd be super cool if he was right on this, but you know, look, I remember something that Dan Moorhead uh, said at SALT, uh, the conference la just last week with Rao. You know, Dan effectively said that the internet isn't just 30 years old, it's more like 50 years old, and it took us 20 years just to get to a browser. Uh, Omakase is talking about how crypto may essentially disappear, becoming transparent behind traditional finance uh, sort of UIs, user, user experience, user interface. He may very well be right about that, but I think that that takes a lot of time. Uh, it'd be really interesting. Maybe he knows something that I don't. Uh, for this two-year time horizon, but it's certainly an interesting question. Uh, and obviously, we're going to be watching it and monitoring it very closely right here, Nico. Absolutely. So let's get those horns blurring, those spotlights swinging, because it's the time for the key takeaways. Here's what I learned today, Ash, from your conversation with Lauren and Amakase from Recharge Capital. Financial infrastructure is just as important to the development of the space as is market cap or any price action related matter. In terms of success of DeFi, John pointed to three main components for the infrastructure, efficiency, transparency, and robustness. Lastly, John and Lauren are both very optimistic about the speed of these changes being realized. Kase, as we saw, compares the space right now to China in the 90s. Early days, but still huge growth potential. But in that, there's also a cautionary note. The space is volatile and a lot of it will fail. He also points out that the significant macro headwinds right now are definitely a factor, but says we're still two years away from mass adoption. All right, moving on to the last segment of the show, viewer questions. Our first one comes from Thomas Bartell on YouTube. Ash, do you think winning against XRP might encourage the SEC to go after Ethereum? Uh, boy, that's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, look, the, the best we could do on that question would be to speculate. I think it's probably reasonable to say in the literally most general sense that when uh, human beings experience victories, they they tend to want to extend them. Uh, but beyond that, in terms of the legal justification or the legal implications, I think it's probably impossible to say at this time. Absolutely. All right. Now on to, I really, this is quite the Twitter handle, Libertarian. They must have gotten into Twitter really early, Ash. Um, <laughs> is XRP a crypto? It looks more like an open source blockchain, a, a sophisticated database, nothing else. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Libertarian, you're not the first person to raise that question. Specifically, I think uh, folks in the uh, in the Bitcoin community have have made that argument before. Look, there, there are a lot of different types of digital assets yet. One of the interesting things to me is whenever I've asked people who invest in the space, who are literally putting capital to work in the space, their own capital, capital that they've raised, uh, one of the universal things that is interesting to me is how they never seem to agree on the taxonomy of how these coins are divided. So it is kind of an open question. I would say you know, for the most part, that each different cryptocurrency, each digital asset strikes a different balance uh, in what's been called the trilemma, I think, by uh, ultimately Bitcoin, uh, the, the trilemma created um, by um, Vitalik Buterin, which is this, this trade-off between scalability, security, and decentralization. XRP obviously strikes a very different balance on that than, for example, Ethereum or Bitcoin, especially folks in that space have, have asked that question. I guess the short answer is it depends who you ask, uh, but there are a lot of sort of variables here that we're looking at in order to try and make that determination libertarian. 
Awesome. All right. Now on to our final question of the day, and this is from our extraordinary intern, Maximus. If we see Ripple win, is this bullish for the crypto space overall or just Ripple? <laughs> I, boy, that's a, that's a great question, but it's so incredibly speculative. You know, we've talked about it on the show before, just how early it is in the space. It would certainly be bullish for Ripple uh, to settle this. I guess the question would then be uh, to figure out what you could extrapolate from that ruling uh, and whether SEC would then continue uh, to challenge it whether there would be appeals in the case, whether they would continue to file more lawsuits, and ultimately some of the broader big picture questions that I mentioned earlier, which is does Congress enact legislation? Uh, what's the what's the rulings from the courts? Just again, very early. I think you know if you wanted to take a guess, you could say it's probably more bullish than bearish if there were a favorable ruling in terms of XRP. But beyond that, really what we're just talking about is in the domain of speculation here, Maximus. Absolutely. And thank you for that great analysis as always, Ash. That's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. As always, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash that like button and hit that notification bell so you know when we go live. And remember, this is your show. We want to hear from you on what's working, what's not. So drop a comment down below and let us know your feedback. What guests do you want to see? What themes should we cover? We appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Tomorrow, we've got Laura Shin breaking down what's happened in the days since the merge. So make sure to subscribe at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That gives you access to the very latest content, including an amazing Rao Pal Adventures in Crypto with Jared Dicker that's coming this Friday. So keep an eye out and remember it's free. We'll see you tomorrow live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Oh.